0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 218, Universal Peace. Now, you may be surprised to get this podcast, since I think, for some reason, I said last week that I wouldn't. But hey, a guy can change his mind, can he not? Just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. If you want to see the smorgasbord of delightful podcasts available, just hop along to agorapodcastnetwork.com and have a look around. Last week, I spent a surprisingly large amount of time warbling on about a hat, which was odd. And this morning or the morning I started writing this episode I paused and I realised that in all the mininarial excitement I'd forgotten to mention the name of the little baby girl that was finally successfully delivered to Catherine and Henry in 1516. Her name was of course Mary, to be the first Queen of England and all that. Now obviously her attention was firmly focused on bodily functions at this time but those watching over her might have looked at her enviously thinking of the life of power, influence and luxury to which a princess was born. Well, gentle listener, plot spoiler alert. Life for Mary will be hard. OK, she's not going to die from lack of food after a series of failed harvests. OK, she's not going to see her livelihood wasted away by the as yet unheard of phenomenon of inflation. And OK, she's not going to die of the English sweats or plague weakened by a life of poverty, dirt and disease. But nonetheless, the little poppet is going to have a hard life, so spare her some sympathy. Before we start, let me also tell you that this coming week, on the 6th of July, there is the 482nd anniversary of an event of global importance, the execution of an undeniably great man, Sir Thomas More, saint, humanist, philosopher, chancellor, Brilliant legal mind, heretic hunter, propaganda expert. That he was a great man is beyond doubt. Whether he was as saintly as he can be presented, or indeed as he was presented in A Man for All Seasons, is seriously open to doubt. Now, look, we will talk about Thomas at some point during these podcasts, but you might like to know that the members are having a bit of a party, in the sense that we have a shedcast, a quiz, and a prize draw for a Henry VIII silver penny. This might excite you so much that it pushes you over the edge into signing up, in which case, great. The prize draw is open for a few weeks. But also, I have made a version of the Thomas More quiz that's available to everyone. So, if you wish to go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk, give it a go. It'd be great to hear. Also, if you'd like more of such quizzes, actually, they take a waterfall of time to make, strangely enough. You'd think it'd be easy, but it isn't. But look, I exist to serve. So if you want more, I can make more. Today, then, we're going to talk about universal peace, ladies and gentlemen, continuing the theme of international diplomacy. But before we get to that, let's have just a bit of domesticity and talk about peccadilloes. That's not peccalilly, that's peccadilloes and talk about evil maydays. Now, those of you who are members may well have listened to the episode about the visitors' views of England around 1500, and how they'd been received by the English when they visited. If you have, you will be painfully aware that the English have a powerful reputation for xenophobia. This was not a new thing. You may decide to cast the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 as an enlightened and precocious movement for social equality. But it also held a brutal element of racism. The Flemings formed a major component of London society and were encouraged by royalty to come and live in England, especially for their weaving skills. But what the locals saw was people from the outside taking their jobs. And so, during the revolt, gangs of young men, the feared apprentices, roamed London Demanding that people say bread and cheese, which sounds odd, but if they could only say "caesar en bruda," they stood a good chance of losing their lives because they'd identified themselves as a foreigner. It really didn't get any better. An Italian visitor in the early 1500s wrote this: Londoners have such fierce tempers and weak-headed dispositions that they not only despise the way in which we Italians live, but actually pursue them with uncontrolled hatred. And whereas at Bruges, foreigners were hospitably received and complimented and treated with consideration by everybody. Here the Englishmen use them with the utmost contempt and arrogance, and make them the object of insults. At night they sometimes drive us off with kicks and blows of the truncheon. Before all you folks in the north, west and so on start preening yourselves that it was just the horrid Londoners that were at fault, who'd want to live in London anyway? Out here we are soft and fluffy. Let me just say that visitors usually went to London and maybe Oxford, and that was pretty much it. So it could well have been every bit as bad in Farley Wallop, but it's a question of reporting. Though anyway, there probably weren't any foreigners in Farley Wallop. Nice though Farley Wallop is. Anyway, let's move on from Farley Wallop back to Funky Town. Well, after Easter in 1517, a preacher stood up in St Paul's Cross, in the City of London, in the Liberty of St Paul's. St Paul's Cross was noted as a place where itinerant preachers got up to speak, a bit like Hyde Park Corner. This preacher's theme was once more hatred. Hatred of foreigners. 1517 had been a difficult year. Bread prices had risen, and as we'll see, there'd been an attack of the plague, the sweating sickness. People were touchy, antsy. So when the preacher let rip at, quote, the aliens and strangers who eat the bread from the poor, fatherless children, whereby poverty is so much increased, he found a willing audience. When an alderman tried to disperse a small group of unruly apprentices baying for blood, disperse, disperse, things got out of hand and he was forced to flee. Run away, run away. As trouble spread, by the late hours of the 30th of April, there were 2,000 out on the streets looking for Flemish blood, and people began to die. Out came the great and the good, including one Sir Thomas More, whose brilliant legal mind and skills had landed him the position of Under Sheriff of London. But all to no avail. The mob would not listen to reason or the music of peace. Away scuttled Thomas, back to reading the reviews on his great masterpiece Utopia, which had been published the year before. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And on the 1st of May, everything went potty. As far as Henry VIII was concerned, and indeed as any king was concerned, this was treason. It was treason because the Londoners were breaking the king's peace. And so, this was an offence not against the Flemings, the Spanish, the Portuguese and any other foreigners who happened to get in the way on that day, but against the state. And punishment was swift and nasty it was the duke of norfolk who restored order as earl marshal of england he ordered his youngest son edmund howard to hang draw and quarter 13 of the rioters and by the end of the day there were hundreds in prison now obviously this was not good as far as henry was concerned no one wanted chaos on the streets but it was also an opportunity it was an opportunity to reinforce the rights and magnificence and power of the state. It was an opportunity for a bit of good, honest, straightforward propaganda. And so you get this delightful piece of theatre. The Tudors liked theatre. Westminster Hall was decked out in cloth of gold and the great men of the realm assembled inside. Wolsey made a long speech berating the Londoners for their violence and Henry replied himself. And then the prisoners were paraded past the king. They'd been stripped to their shirts, handcuffed and had nooses around their necks. In front of the king, they threw themselves on their knees and shouted, Mercy! But Henry would not be moved. I'm not moved, you know. The great and puissant prince declared that all 400 must be hanged, drawn and quartered as traitors. You must be hanged, drawn and quartered as traitors. As in, a highly choreographed piece of drama. Then... Queen Catherine threw herself on her knees in front of the king, oh, and begged him to show mercy. Unable to resist her tears, oh, all right. Then the king graciously pardoned the rioters. Now, does this remind you of anything? It reminds me of the burghers of Calais, barefoot and carrying nooses around their necks in 1347. Of Edward III's queen, Philippa of Hainaut, throwing herself in front of the king to beg for mercy. There are a few things going on here. The king has demonstrated his power, the magnificence of royal power has been glorified and the lords of the land have been firmly reminded that it was only the monarch that stood as a bulwark against uncontrolled anarchy. At the same time, nobody really wanted 400 apprentice boys eviscerated on the streets of London and here was the traditional queen's role to allow the king to show mercy without appearing to yield to force or fear and appear weak. It's all very neat, all very stylized. Meanwhile, it helped forge a bond between London and Queen Catherine that Henry would live to dislike intensely. I've no idea whether Catherine, now 32 years old, enjoyed the theatre, but by now it's probable that her life and relationship with Henry was slowly changing, and not in a good way. Despite the birth of Mary, Catherine and Henry probably began to drift apart as the King's frustration would grow at the lack of a male heir and her influence with the king, and therefore her powers in politics and of patronage, faded. She turned more and more to religion. Justiniani noted that the queen is religious and virtuous as words could express. Extreme piety would be a feature of Catherine's life to sustain her through the pain ahead. She also had to cope with a short number but probably reasonably constant procession of royal affairs. The first sniff of a possible affair had been Anne Stafford, though that could have been William Compton acting on his own behalf rather than as the King's chief recruiting officer. And then there is a suspicion that maybe, possibly, perhaps, Henry had an affair with a French maid of honour, Jeanne Popancourt, but nothing is certain, and Jane returned to Paris in 1516 with a hundred quid from the King in her back pocket, or bodice or wherever might have been the best place to slip a 100 quid. Actually, since it would probably have been barrels of silver pennies, in her bodice might have been tricky. But anyway, a 100 quid. So, it's Elizabeth Blunt, a relative of Lord Mountjoy, who is the first bona fide mistress. Bessie Blunt was apparently renowned for her skill in music and dancing, and was a frequent player in court masks, partnering with the king in 1514. We must talk about masks sometime. And her affair with Henry probably took place during another of Catherine's pregnancies in 1518 that would once again end in disaster. Elizabeth was gone from court before long and married off to one Gilbert tallboy. I hope he wasn't too wooden. But in 1519, she gave birth to the king's bastard, duly named Henry Fitzroy, Henry, son of the king. Some years later, Henry would be sorely tempted to have Fitzroy legitimised, but that's for the future. And the next on the mistress list would be Mary Boleyn, the other Boleyn girl, as it were, sometime in or after 1520, but we'll come to that. And the name Boleyn appears in our story. Still, despite a growing coolness, Henry appears to have been a reasonably proud father within the lights of such things back then, for a busy monarch with all that mm, hunting and hawking to be done with his chumps. Obviously, blokes couldn't expect to take a practical interest in anything so small, female and insignificant, so early childhood was under Catherine's charge, and Catherine was not the one to delegate this job, as could have been the case. There is no need of any other person but myself to nurse her. I will put her in my bed where I sleep, and I will sit up with her when needful. Still, Henry was probably more than usually interested and proud in his daughter. Justiniani again was to remark that greater honour was paid to the princess than to the queen. Slightly rude, but hey. In the summer of 1517, as per normal, Henry and his Queen went on their progress, from Hunting Lodge to Hunting Lodge, to Great Magnate to Great Magnate, from Royal Palace to Royal Palace. But in June, Woolsey fell so ill that for a while it was thought that he would croak. Ill health would be a feature of Woolsey's life. But this year Woolsey was not alone. In the very hot summer, England was subject to a plague of the sweating sickness. This is a disease that seems to have been a feature of the early Tudors. It had been first noticed with a series of epidemics in 1485 and hit England so hard that on the continent they called it the English Sweats. It seems to have been an influenza type thing which hit during the summer and early autumn and hit so hard that as Edward Hall described it, you could be, quote, merry at dinner and dead at supper. Certainly, it couldn't be described as my idea of a good day out. It began very suddenly with cold shivers Dizziness, headache and severe pains in the neck, shoulders and limbs with great exhaustion. After as much as three hours, it was time for heat and the eponymous sweating. More bad stuff led to then either general exhaustion and collapse or an irresistible urge to sleep. Having the disease gave you no immunity. And so the terror came back to haunt you each time. Now, Henry might be brave on the jousting field but show him a small boy with pimples and he'd suffer an immediate and total moral collapse and call for a glass of milk, his mummy and a bedside story. So when a few of the royal council and some pages of the king's bedchamber fell ill, Henry ran like a hare. As the royal buttocks disappeared over the hills, only physicians, a few musicians and a small band of royal favourites were allowed to follow. Henry would all his life be something of a hypochondriac, something you ought to know about the lad. Now, I've messed about with the domestics to our heart's content, so let's get back to the solemn and serious business of high politics and high drama. So far, Henry's diplomatic life had been mainly characterised by an aggressive desire to stick it to the French, without a massive amount of success, it has to be said, but with some. For a short period, England was to completely abandon the warrior king piece of branding and rather remarkably for the moral high ground an attempt to put in place a European-wide system of peace that would have been a remarkable achievement in any period, let alone war-torn early modern Europe. Funnily enough, it all started with a mad scheme by Pope Leo X. Now, calling for crusades was a sort of occupational hazard of becoming a pope. There you were, sitting around, carrying out the duties of the spiritual leader of Christendom, when suddenly a feeling would come over you like a tidal wave and you started swearing to your god and on your mother's grave that it was time to go on a crusade. Forget the fact that the age of any credible crusade was long gone, let alone crusade that actually achieved anything. If you were a pope, at some point, the crusade bug would come a-calling. Leo got it particularly bad. His plan involved an alliance with the Emperor of Abyssinia, the King of Georgia and the Shah of Persia, as well as the normal suspects of France, Empire and England, and all that sort of thing. Henry seems to have been sensible enough to have had an attack of the giggles when he heard of the plan. Presumably when the papal envoy mentioned Abyssinia, he thought he was just off somewhere. Abyssinia, see? Anyway, this time Wolsey and Henry thought they might steal the papal clothes. Under the cover of the discussions about a universal alliance to go and bash up Islam, Wolsey and Henry started talking instead about the idea of a universal peace. Here's the big idea then, that every major country in Europe sign up to keep the peace, forever, to the end of time. There'd be England and the Empire and France, of course, but also over 20 other lesser places like Denmark, Portugal, Switzerland. If anyone started a fight, all the rest would gang up on them. The Pope could join in too if he wanted, but actually Leo was largely left out of the furious round of negotiations on which Wolsey now embarked. The whole thing sounds almost as nutty as a fruitcake, or indeed that universal crusade idea that Leo was peddling. I mean, get real, this is Europe we're talking about. Mindless and continual wars are what makes the world go round. It's what kings do. If this piece went through, they'd pretty much soon end up praying for the end of time to hurry up and arrive. They'd have to talk to their respective queens over supper, potentially even end up in the dreadful world of DIY. This could end with Francis I measuring up for a nice set of bookshelves or replacing the putty on the windows. Surely a thing to be laughed at (laughs) ha! before pulverising another unsuspecting Italian hill town. Funnily enough, though, it wasn't an entirely new idea. In the 1460s, King George of Bohemia had made a similar proposal. he even proposed that a secretariat and assembly should be established to keep peace throughout Europe. Presumably, given that this is often quoted as the precursor of the European Union, there would have to have been an enormous bureaucracy with remarkably generous expense accounts to boot. I love the EU, by the way, don't get me wrong, but you know, a cheap laugh is a cheap laugh. The problem with the plan was that the pious and peace-loving spiritual leader of Christendom, the Pope, had no interest in anything bohemian unless it was being burned at the stake for heresy and the world was not yet ready for subsidised duck islands. And so the plan disappeared into obscurity. But, stripped of the expense account, this is kind of what Wolsey and Henry proposed in 1518. Clearly, it was a ludicrous idea, (laughs) Ha! doomed to failure amongst a background of hysterical laughter. And yet, and yet, do you know, they pretty well succeeded. Not least of Wolsey's achievements was to turn the hormonally challenged Henry from swashbuckling lover of glory into a genuinely passionate bearer of peace. In all probability, because anything that put Henry in England at the centre of attention was cool with Henry. But as will be the case throughout all of Henry's violent swings of conscience, it doesn't do to be too cynical about Henry's attitude. He was, in all probability, really up for it. And as for Wolsey, the motivation was similar as the Venetian ambassador snidely remarked, nothing pleases him more than to be called arbiter of the affairs of Christendom. Well, I have to say that if anyone, you know, like Angela Merkel or what's-his-name Macron would like to call me arbiter of the affairs of Christendom, I believe I should accept and be equally pleased. It'd sound super good at dinner parties, just one step behind David Bloodaxe, so I'm not going to criticise Wolsey for that. So, blow me down. If during 1518 a bunch of countries had not signed the Treaty of London, otherwise known as the Treaty of Universal Peace, or Perpetual Peace, or the Treaty of what? Boygandy, France, England, the Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands, France, Spain, all signed up. At the heart of the treaty was a treaty between England and the French, which was subordinate to the Treaty of Universal Peace, but critical to it, since it brought France on board. Henry had to hand back Tournay, which was a bit sore, since it was essentially a symbol of his manhood, a sort of in loco cod pisciensis. But actually it was jolly expensive anyway, so it made good sense to get rid of it, especially since France had to pay for it with an annual pension of 15,000 quid, which would pay for a few banquets and jousts to fill the time that otherwise would have been spent sending armies all over the place. There was lots of other handy stuff too. One of these concerned the Scots, As I believe I have mentioned Margaret Tudor Henry's sister and Queen of Scotland had been forced to flee Scotland while the Duke of Albany had taken control of her young king the son of James V and Margaret. She had finally managed to stitch up a peace with Albany with the help of Henry all of which was helped by the fact that Albany had gone to France and under the treaty between England and France he was to be kept right where he was by the French and not allowed to go home and cause trouble for the Tudors in Scotland. Then to put the cherry on the cake The little two-year-old Mary was betrothed to the French Dauphin. Cool bananas. All of this was celebrated by vasts, jousts and celebrations, of course, silly not to, which at one stage involved 600 French horsemen trotting through the streets of London. The advocates of the new learning, men like Erasmus, Moore, Collet, were besides themselves with joy, literally wetting themselves with delight. Well, figuratively, hopefully. Woolsey had seemed to them to have fulfilled his potential. Ironically, it was only in Rome where cynicism reigned and this was basically sour grapes. Essentially, Leo and his chumps realised bitterly that what had started as their search for a golden alliance against Islam to the greater glory of the papacy had been hijacked by the English. And now their crusade was a footnote and the papacy barely consulted. The future Clement VII grumpily remarked, We can tell what the Holy See and the Pope have to expect from the English Chancellor. But seriously, Leo had absolutely no choice, and so he obediently signed up like all the rest. Now, the Treaty of Universal Peace, as of course you know, will crash and burn. The 16th century will not be known as the century of European peace. It will be known as the one where millions of people die in a hideous conflagration of dynastic and religious wars. But, do you know, I think it should be more well-known than it is. And I, personally, am going to award Henry and Wolsey a History of England Golden E for effort. There will be a ceremony, speeches and all that, and at some point someone will photocopy their bottom, the mark of every good office party. Still, right after the Treaty of Universal Peace was signed and sealed, occurred an event designed to cause chaos, confusion, death and fear, which is unfortunate. I speak of the election of the Holy Roman Emperor. Ha! I hear you say. But why? We have a Holy Roman Emperor already. That's our pal Mad Max, isn't it? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you. Are you sitting down? Take a deep breath. <sighs> OK, here we go. Our Maximilian was a morbid sort of a chap, a more than a little volatile given to devising mad schemes and pathologically unreliable. He appears to have thought a lot about death, and actually, top tip, if you don't want to think a lot about your death, do not, under any circumstances, travel with your own coffin. I hope that none of Max's counsellors are listening to this, because I imagine if they are, they'll be kicking themselves. Because that's exactly what they allowed Max to do. After 1514, he took his coffin with him, wherever he went. Sadly, in January 1519, he had need of it. The instructions he left included having his body whipped and covered with lime to show the world the transitory nature of power. I think I'll pick strawberry jam. Now then, after a decent period of mourning of around, ooh, four to five minutes, two candidates started to gird their loins. Francis I of France and Charles of Spain, you know, the guy with the chin. You might remember how these elections are carried out. If so, I'm sorry, since I'm going to bore you by telling you again. Essentially, the election was in the hands of the Germans, because that's essentially what the empire was now, give or take, Germany. There were seven electors, three prince-bishops and four secular rulers. The election process had essentially been designed by Sepp Blatter's spiritual ancestor, i.e. the person who paid the most in bribes to the electors got the deal. My legal advisor would like to make it quite clear that this is just a joke. The amount of money changing hands was bigger than the eponymous crocodile, when a new candidate threw his hat into the ring, Henry VIII. The electors had some worried moments. Henry the who? Several of them commissioned cartographers to locate the bloke, finding themselves looking at a small, damp patch of land where the rain was impossible to see through the veil of fog and mist that covered it. Although, funnily enough, in 1510, Maximilian, in one of his more lucid moments, had proposed a scheme where Henry would hire 6,000 soldiers march across Europe to meet him, where Max would resign as Holy Roman Emperor and hand the imperial crown over to Henry. This was a plan so barking mad that even Henry had consigned it to the dustbin of history. That's a quote, apparently from Leon Trotsky, who got an ice pick that made his ears burn, and who also apparently said that revolutions were always verbose, which I thought was an interesting perspective. But look, I warble. Henry VIII never had any chance whatsoever of being elected. And actually, probably Francis I didn't either, though we spent so much money trying that even Sepp Blatter and Michel Platini would have been impressed. Joke! (laughs) LOL! It was, of course, Charles of Spain, Charles Habsburg, though a complete stranger to Germany, who was duly elected. He was grandson to Maximilian, he was Habsburg, he wasn't French, and he had a chin that could kill at 50 paces, so he was in. Now look, I had fully intended to get to the field of the cloth of gold, but well, now I'm clearly not. So... I'm instead going to do a brief biopic of Charles V, Charles of Spain, the new Holy Roman Emperor, because like Francis I of France, he's going to be with us for quite a while. We've heard quite a bit of Charles over the last few episodes. Like a fine wine, he has now matured, and with his election as Holy Roman Emperor in 1518, he has now come into the fullness of his patrimony, and indeed, he's now 18 years old. His official title goes on for days, seriously, because the extent of his title, reflected the diversity and size of his empire. He is the grandson of Maximilian and Mary of Burgundy on one side and of the Catholic monarchs Isabel and Ferdinand of Spain on the other. In him was therefore first combined the thrones of Aragon, Castile and Navarra into one kingdom of Spain. This means he also controlled the kingdom of Naples and Sicily, Sardinia and Corsica in the Mediterranean southern Italy. He is the duke of Burgundy which effectively means that he owns the low countries which we might begin to call the Spanish Netherlands. He is archduke of Austria and as inheritor of the Habsburgs he owns a mass of land in central Europe Austria Bohemia and now he's the Holy Roman Emperor. When looking at the map of Europe and Charles's lands the first thing that happens is a very substantial amount of boggling. This demands a digression. I looked up the word "boggle," and what an odd word! I thought "boggle." Hmm. Apparently, it derives from the word "bogle." The origin of the word "bogle" is obscure. Possibly, a Welsh word to take fright, or a German word for bogey, as in "Old boggy walks tonight." But a bogle is a goblin. This gets us to boggling in the sense of taking fright of something scary. And this is what happens when you look at the extent of Charles's territories. You boggle and you boggle, gentle listener, with good reason. He faces the threat of the Ottoman Empire in the east. He faces the worldwide expansion and exploration through the crown of Spain. He faces the ambitions and aggressions of France in the west and in Italy, where he also has to deal with the Pope. There's a famous quote attributed to him which kind of reflects, in a slightly icky way, the polyglot nature of his life. I speak Spanish to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to my horse. The logistical problems of manipulating any sort of contact between all these disparate parts is awe-inspiring, or indeed mind-boggling. But put out of your mind the thought of a unified state. It is not. And never does Charles make any attempt to make it so. These are all medieval dynastic possessions. Nowhere and at no time did Charles have the potential to centralise across all of them, as Francis was striving to do in France, though Charles tried to do that kind of integration within the individual territories themselves. The word medieval is a most suitable one to use, because although Charles was thoroughly educated in the world of the New Learning, his attitudes and impulses were yet medieval and dynastic. Set in this vast empire he would resolutely refuse to yield an inch and the struggle with an aggressive France and Islam would dominate his life and policy. He was conventionally but deeply pious and in the face of the reformation he would remain resolutely Roman Catholic though ironically it is at least partly because of the size of his empire and therefore the number of his distractions that Lutheranism was able to grow in its first years. And lastly from an English perspective, you have to keep reminding yourself that Catherine of Aragon is his auntie. Okie Feinsky, that's it for this week. Sadly, there'll be then be a bit of a hole. The next podcast is the 23rd of July, although it might just possibly perhaps be that we have a guest cast before then from Sam Hume, so keep your eyes peeled. You can pretty much put any word in front of cast, can't you? Huh. Suggestions on a postcast. Don't forget about Thomas. Thomas more that is to say, there's a quiz for everyone at thehistoryofengland.co.uk or this might be the time to go to the same place and sign up for all the fun of the Shedcasts and get the Shedcasts and enter the prize draw and enter into a happier, fuller, more fulfilled life. That's it then. Have a great few weeks. See you on the 23rd.